Father, we wish to sit at your feet and learn just as the disciples were gathered around Jesus on this Sermon on the Mount and they learned of you. We ask that it would be for us just like it was for them. That the message that is being spoken through the word that we have here would be just as alive, just as vibrant. We ask, Lord, that you would use these things to inform us that we might walk in your ways, understand your will. And Father, as members of the kingdom, help us to take these things to heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, talked about Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes and how Jesus gave five sermons in the gospel here. And of course, we have the sermon or the discourse on the mount, some would like to call it, chapters 5 through 7. And then in chapter 10, you have the message on missions and Jesus told his disciples to come to him. He called them and he said, this is what you're supposed to do when you go out. After that, there was chapter 13, and in chapter 13, he was dealing with the parables of the kingdom, telling us what heaven is like and what the kingdom of heaven is like. And remember, the kingdom of heaven is exactly the same as the kingdom of God. The reason that the kingdom of heaven is being used here is because Matthew is primarily writing to the Jews or Jews that would understand this, and he doesn't want to bring an offense. He doesn't want to say, God, because the Jews, you know, even in the Jewish scriptures, they will write a capital G, a dash, and a D. But do you know that's not God's name? That's who he is. That's like his title. He is God. But that's not his name. His name is the Tetragrammaton, which we kind of fill in the vowels on that because we don't have the vowel points, the Jews left that out because they didn't want anybody speaking God's name. And we understand it as either Yahweh or Jehovah. Now, he has several other names as well. And technically, if you wanted to say, well, God is his name, well, maybe, but it's more of a title. It's kind of like the titles that were given in the Old Testament, like to Herod in the New Testament. Herod was a title. It wasn't his name. It was like he was a leader or a governor, that type of thing. So we want to make sure that we understand what is going on here when it comes to the parables of the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of heaven. There is no opposition. They are both the same. From there, he goes into Matthew chapter 18, and he deals with uh, people and church discipline. And this is the place where two or three are gathered together in my name. There he is in the midst of that type of thing. And we take that often out of context. I've heard several pastors do it. Where two or three are gathered together in his name, it's about church discipline where there is a judgment made inside the church by the leaders of the church and they say, this is the decree, this is what's going to be. We are either going to restore this person or we're going to ask this person to leave the fellowship. Whatever they decide on earth, Jesus is standing with them. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. And he says, I am going to be in agreement with you. That's the purpose of the passage. And some people like to stretch it out and say, well, no, it's, it's when two or three are gathered together, then he's in the midst of the prayer. Well, if that's true, it means by default, if there's only one of us, he's not there in the midst of the prayer. 
And that's totally false. He is there. He is there with us. He indwells us on the inside. And so he talks about that. He talks about how ministry is supposed to be performed inside of the church, the little children and the lost sheep and the unforgiving servant and all of those things and forgiveness as well. And then in chapter uh, 24 and 25, he deals with the Olivet Discourse. And as I told you before, I can't wait to get into that, especially with everything that has transpired. I've been listening to messages lately. Even this week, I probably listened to a dozen different messages or more, maybe 15, on prophetic updates and teaching on Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and Luke 21 and the book of Revelation and Daniel chapter 9 and all of those things. And people are talking about what's going on in the world. And it's interesting to hear what they thought three years ago or four years ago. I even listened to Chuck Missler and he gave a message in 1990. And I was listening to this message that he gave in 1990. And one of the things that he said that stuck out to me is he's talking about the different countries, the different nations that are mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 38. And he happens to mention Turkey. And he goes, you know, Turkey, they're part of NATO. Everything is all good right now. And Jews are their friends. Sometimes the Jews go and they vacation in Turkey. He goes, but you watch. Turkey is going to turn It is going to become a fundamentalist Islamic country, and they are going to reject Israel. He goes, it hasn't happened yet. You know, it hasn't happened, but it's going to happen. And what do we see today? I'm going, this has totally happened. And so it's fun to go back and listen to those things that they were considering were on the horizon, and they are actually here. And there's so much more uh, that has taken place. So if Jesus was going to leave, or you knew you would not see him again in person, you might ask, well, what's he going to tell me? I want to find out something from him. And if he would give me some wisdom, this would be great. Well, these are the messages here that he had not only for his disciples, but he had for us as well, or he has for us as well. And we don't want to neglect what these things are. And this deals, of course, this first section with the Sermon on the Mount. And it says, now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, and of course we get into the blesseds here. Now remember, this is the longest sermon recorded that Jesus ever gave. As I told you last week, there's probably a lot more to it, but we have the edited version or the truncated version. And this word blessed, I told you what that meant last week. It's like somebody who is wealthy we would consider them blessed. Even today, we'd say, you are blessed. Somebody who's driving a very expensive car, someone like Elon Musk, you know, he's talking about going to the moon now. It's either him or Bezos. I forget which one it is. But they're talking about going to the moon. They are blessed. They can do whatever they want. You know, if they buy a boat, they don't have a small boat. They have like a 100-foot yacht, which is out there with five different levels on it. And they are blessed. They have all this. Of course, they have a lot of headache with that. But they are blessed. And that's how we would look at them. We would say, you are blessed. And remember, blessed, as in being rich, are the poor in spirit. And so there's this paradoxical view of what is going on in Scripture. And we'll kind of dissect that a little bit. I talked about also the teachable moment, the WPI, the willingness, the presence, and the acquisitiveness of the disciples. If we are disciples, we are willing to be where he is. We are present. We are willing to be taught by him. And we inquire of him. Well, what about these things? Like like in Matthew chapter 24. Then I talked about the terrain, what it looked like, and then the crowd. 
Now, remember, there were tens of thousands of people. They were great crowds. That word great is a superlative that's used in there. And we know that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues. In Luke 5, 1, it talks about the people crowding around him, listening to the word of God. We know that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there based on Luke. And also it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, which I just said, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside. Now, the crowds were still following him. I want you to take this the way it's supposed to be given to us. Jesus gives us types. God gives us types, or he gives us foreshadowing. For instance, in the Old Testament, you had Moses that led the people out of the land. How many people did he lead? One to three million by the time they left. Just a huge multitude. Jesus is ministering to the multitudes. They're all following. How many people ended up entering the promised land under Moses? Two. How many people ended up deserting Jesus in his ministry? All but his disciples. The multitudes went away. You, you can see these parallels going on with Moses and Jesus. When Moses went to Mount Sinai, what did he go up to the mountain to get? The Ten Commandments. And he brought those down for the people. And then they put them inside the ark. Jesus, where did he go? Up on a mountainside. He sat down, and in the Old Testament, no one was allowed to go on the mountain. In the New Testament, all the multitudes were allowed to come up on the mountain. And Jesus sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And so you see these parallels. Now they took the Ten Commandments and they put them in the Ark of the Covenant. Where does God put these eight blessings? In our hearts. Our hearts are the Ark that are supposed to maintain what is there. And what else did they have in the ark in the Old Testament? They had the manna, right? Jesus is the bread of life. Where does Jesus reside? In our hearts. You see the parallels that are going on here? We don't want to miss these. And so it's like repeating again. The same thing with the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So we we want to make sure that we're inspecting what is going on. And back in the Old Testament, you had ten commandments. Thou shalt or thou shalt not commit adultery, commit murder, those types of things. And Jesus, he gives the flip side. Blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. All of these things, he, he hasn't come to the earth to condemn but to save. But in the Old Testament, the law, when it was given, it was something that would condemn. And that was supposed to drive people to God. In the New Testament, Jesus gives these blessings. He's blessed or happy are you or greatly to be envied if you keep these things or if you follow these things or if this person is like this, if he has his characteristics, he's blessed. And so you see the contrasting taking place. Now, we have these eight different marks of someone who makes up the kingdom of God. It is the manifesto of the kingdom. A manifesto is a public declaration of policy or aims. Uh, This idea, Karl Marx, he wrote a manifesto. You know what that manifesto is? The communist manifesto. They included things like 
infiltrating the educational system in the United States. That's one. Uh, making sure that you create chaos, make sure that you uh, call good evil and evil good, all of these things that they wanted to do. They wanted to make uh, uh, the physical relationship between a man and a woman something that was just completely open and no holds barred on anything. They wanted to remove morality. And of course, if you read that, everything that they have set out to do has almost come to pass. We've gotten a little bit of a reprieve, but when it comes to the manifesto as a Christian... What exactly is it that we have? Well, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled or they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are the persecuted. And, and that persecuted, it goes from uh, not only that verse, but the verse down below that. It says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you for my sake. And, and so those eight things that are listed there, and the blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are bookends. The first one was... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. And so you have these bookends which are there. Now, I I told you this several weeks ago. The way this one is set up, and especially in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20, God, the way that he writes things is even a a marvel. These are what are known as uh, chiastic structures where they are like a mirror image of each other. And you can actually step these things down. You have the first four that step down and the other four go the other way. And it provides meaning. It provides insight. It's kind of like poetry. And you find these things hidden. Now, in your NIV, you probably have it broken down where there are indents inside the column there where when it says in verse 1 and 2, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, he sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. That is a narrative. Then you go to this poetry. When you get to poetry, there's all kinds of meaning stuffed inside the poetry and it's our task to unpack it. Like for instance, when you say something like, roses are red, violets are blue, and then you finish the rest of it. You can add on whatever you want But there is meaning behind the rhythm. And even the rhythm has meaning in there. And so Jesus, when he is speaking these things, or at least when it's recorded down in Matthew, there is meaning that is just tucked everywhere in there. You're going, wow, this is incredible. I was listening to one guy preach about this in Chicago. And he had a 17-part sermon on the Beatitudes. Just eight verses, but 17 different messages. I haven't gone through all 17. But as I was listening to him, he said, you know, as I was going through these and I was meditating on them, he goes, I started to get chills. And I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm going, oh, come on, chills. Yeah, right. Yeah, he said, you know, you just go through this. And then I sit down and I start going through it. And I start getting chills. You know, I go, oh, there's... There's so much meaning in this. And to unpack it and discover the heart of God in here, you just go, 
What? I'm getting the chills right now. I'm just thinking how I got the chills. But it, it's this idea that God has so much for us if we will just dig into this. And so we're going to do that. But before we get there, when it comes to these blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, we think that the Beatitudes are something that believers must practice to be perfect. First of all, we know we're not going to be perfect. There are even those, and I listened to a message on this, some believe that if you just practice these things, you will be saved because you are performing the commands of God. Those who love God keep his commands. And this is not true. Otherwise, it turns into a works doctrine. If, how do you become poor in spirit? <clears throat> you know, you put your... Uh, jazzercise band on your head you put your sweatbands on your wrist and you got your richard simmons leotards on and you're ready to go and you say to yourself okay i'm going to be poor in spirit today i'm i'm going to work at, well, you know what uh blessed are those who mourn i'm going to i'm going to take my mascara and my makeup and my tissues to wipe off the the tears that are going to come down and that's just for the guys when it comes for the women you know they're going to have the lipstick and everything else and they're going to practice mourning today today is going to be a morning it doesn't work blessed are the meek i'm going to practice being meek today being gentle you know and, and if we try that we fail miserably i'm going to give you a personal illustration i failed at this miserably yesterday just as bad as can be. Now, I've talked about this a couple of times. You know, out in front here, we have the flowers and we have the grass. And, you know, I've talked about people, they bring their dogs over and most all of them clean up after the dogs. And I'm, I'm out there yesterday and I'm looking around and I go, oh, I'm in the middle of the flowers. Oh, so it's... I'm talking like Popeye underneath my voice. And I come in and I go to the computer and I look at the cameras and I go, who is it? Now, I want to know around this neighborhood who it is. And so I'm watching and I, I finally found it. And there's this young woman. She's under 25. She is pregnant. She has a dog that's not on a leash. And I don't want to give you too many details of what the dog looks like or anything, but the dog comes over and is just running around the whole front of the church, just marking everything. And I'm going, oh, okay, I'm going to be meek about this. And then she just stands there and the dog goes right over to the palm tree and does his business on the flowers. Meekness. I'm thinking, because I'm going through the Beatitudes, meekness, Right. Okay, I know who it is, and so when I see them, I'm going to, this young woman, I'm going to say something. And So I'm out there, I'm working, and lo and behold, who comes walking down the street? And so I stop what I'm doing, I walk over there, and I say, excuse me, I wonder if you could help me out. And she's on her phone, and it's like I'm bugging her. I go, and she goes, Yes. And I said, could you do me a favor? And just when you're in the neighborhood here, just carry a bag to pick up after your dog. And she says, well, I can't. I can't bend over because I'm pregnant. And I said, okay. And I'm thinking, 
pooper scooper, you know, something you could use. I said, could, you know, I just want you to maybe be a responsible dog owner. I'm sure no one in the neighborhood would like to find that, uh, you know, around. And she goes, you mean to tell me I can't just let my dog go anywhere? And I said, no, you can't. And she goes, well, I can't pick it up. And it's like, wait a second, you know, so I feel the hair going back on the back of my neck just coming up. And I'm telling her, I, I say, and I'm, I'm starting to fail at this point. And I tell her, you know, I, I would just like you to be a responsible dog owner. For some reason, you know, take your dog where nobody else is. We've got a big field down there. If you need to take your dog over there, just please don't bring the dog over here and just make this your little potty stop for your dog. And she looks at me and she just gets on her phone and walks away right in the middle of my explanation. And I'm thinking to myself, tackle her. Just, I'm thinking, I mean, the sin which comes up on the inside of things that I'm going to do. I am not being gentle. I am not being meek. I failed miserably. I went home and I said, Patty, I'm not even saved. I, I can't do this. I, you know, I, and she goes, well, that's what I say. And I go, oh, this, we're just failures at this, you know? And I'm, I'm thinking to myself afterwards, well, what? And Patty goes, she'll probably come back and just in spite of what you've said, just have the dog just go everywhere. And, and then I'm thinking, well, what will I do then? I know. I'll pick it up and take it to her porch. And I go, no, I can't. I can't do that. I have to be meek. I, I have to be gentle. I have to be mild. And so when it comes to these beatitudes here, we will constantly fail if we try to perfect them. The book of Galatians says, having been made perfect, are you... Are, uh, Having been justified in the flesh, are you now going to meet, excuse me, back up. Having begun in the spirit, are you now going to be perfected in the flesh? And we try to perfect this flesh. We're not supposed to try to perfect it. We're supposed to try to kill it. Now, not literally, but on the inside, all of its desires are to be put to death. And the desires that Christ has are the ones that are to flourish inside of us. So how do we do that anyhow? How do you go from poor in spirit and those who mourn and the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and how do you be merciful when somebody is just making your day a chafe? You know what chafing is, right? Chafe makes you really uncomfortable. And what about those who are supposed to be pure in heart? And I know that I'm not supposed to, that I'm not pure in heart. I know what's inside of me. And what about being a peacemaker? I do not want to be a peacemaker. I want to win. I, I, I don't want anything with peace to be involved in my life. And I see this stuff. I, how do I do this? Because Jesus says the members of the kingdom do these things. And I find that I just constantly fail. Well, something else about these, if you're just looking at your Bible, each one of these verses from 3 to 10 has either theirs or they. And when it says that, and you want to pay attention to when, when you see a word repeating like that, the they is they alone 
and it's emphatic. It does not apply to anyone else. The only one who is blessed is the one who is poor in spirit. The only one who is blessed or blessed is the one who mourns, the one who meeks, or is meek, the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemaker, and the one who is persecuted. It says you are blessed if you are those things. And by the way, it, it, it's a state of being. It says blessed are those who mourn. It, it's the state of that we dwell in. And so we have these eight Beatitudes in 11, in these um, three, verse three to verse 10. And it's not a workout so much. And as I was explaining, how do you become poor in spirit? You practice being humble. How do you mourn? How do, how do you engender in yourself meekness? Or how do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Uh, you know, I talked to a, a guy yesterday. And this guy, is a, he's a big businessman. He has a large company, and I was uh, listening to some messages on my earphones yesterday, and he happened to go by, and I talked to him uh, a little bit, and he kind of said, so what are you listening to, in so many words? And I said, sermons. He goes, sermons. And he knows who I am, and and he says, you a preacher? And I said, I am a preacher. And he goes, oh, oh. What are you listening to? Oh, never mind. You know, I'll tell you, people today, they, they just don't know what's right and wrong anymore. And he starts going off in this diatribe. And this guy, <laughs> looking at his lifestyle, he's the biggest pagan I've ever seen. You know, and I don't want to go too much in detail, but this guy, if you looked at him and you asked him if he's a Christian, he'd probably say yes, but boy, his life at least as far as I can tell, it doesn't say that. But he hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He couldn't stand what's going on in the schools. He goes, you know, I haven't made money since Ronald Reagan. I said, really? He goes, yeah, now I'm making money. And then he goes off on this thing with Trump. Oh, sometimes he's just brash and, you know, the way that he talks, but man, he's getting it done. And he just was pointing to everything that was right and good. And the reason I'm saying this is because this flows in a particular direction. There are check valves. It doesn't back up the other way. If you were to do this in this particular case, somebody who thirsts and hunger for righteousness, he was thirsting and hungering for righteousness. But if I went backwards and if I said, was this guy meek? No, he wasn't being gentle at all. Was he ready to mourn as well? No, it's kind of going backwards. First, you have to mourn in order to become meek. And from meek, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's kind of like this. When I was growing up, and maybe most of you, there were playgrounds which were out there, and they had dangerous play equipment out there. This one we had was called, it was like a, a spider jungle gym. It had four legs coming down, like a pyramid and a center pole that was large. And that thing was at least 15 to 20 feet up there. And you would get on the underside of one of the angled poles, and you'd go all the way up to the top. And I mean, you were up there on the top. And then you would grab the center one, and you'd slide down. And four uh, stations would be all these kids at recess going up this thing. And every once in a while, a kid would fall from the top and break their arm. Literally. They'd break their arm. They'd fall down and they'd try to catch themselves. And we don't have that. Well, there was this other thing called the, uh, 
ring swing. Now, I don't know if you know what this ring swing is, but it's like there are two uh, horizontal pipes that go up, and there's like this ladder thing that is across the top, and on this ladder thing are all these big metal rings that hang down. And you would grab the first one, which was bigger, and you would get, you would pull it back, and then you'd swing and grab the next one. You couldn't get to the next one unless you had hold of the first one, especially if you were small. And some of the kids would try to go every other one. You know, the big kids would get on there and do every other one. But you were still tied to the first one you grabbed. It's the same thing in the Beatitudes here. When it comes to the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I'll explain what that is in a second. But you had to grab the poor in spirit in order to get to the mourn. You couldn't just jump and leap out and get the mourn. And and that would carry you across. And sometimes... Kids would go back, but you know it would create havoc. They would start saying, Johnny, you're not supposed to go backwards. You're only supposed to go that. And they would start yelling and screaming, but everybody would want to do it. And then some jokers, they'd get up inside the rings, you know, instead of going across. But as these things, these beatitudes are here, we're to grab the poor in spirit, which leads us to mourning, which leads us to meekness, which leads us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, which leads us to merciful, which leads us to pure in heart, which leads us to peacemaker, which leads us to being persecuted. Now, who wants to sign up at the end of that? Imagine that ring swing. You get to the last one, you grab it, and it shocks you. They have electricity hooked up to it. And you... Oh, you have to let go or get off as fast as you can. And that's what the Beatitudes are here. We grab those things, we swing across, and we can't go backwards and hope to accomplish the same thing. And so what is the meaning of these things here? Well, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor means a deficit or a diminished quality or volume of something. So this individual who is poor here, now I've had to revise my opinion of what blessed are the poor in spirit and what it means. I previously thought, after doing a lot of research on this and having conversations even with people in the church here, I felt it was being interpreted by Luke chapter 6, verse 20, blessed are the poor. And I really don't think that that is what is being talked about here. Being poor in spirit does not mean also lacking in spirit. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you're lacking in courage or lacking in the Holy Spirit or lacking in religious awareness. None of those things. And also when it comes to this, if you look at it, it doesn't mean blessed in spirit are the poor. If you start dissecting the actual text there, it's blessed are the poor in spirit, which means they are lacking something or there is a deficit there of some kind and that deficit is looking at what you lack now what is it that we lack being poor in spirit we lack any way to become righteous or justified before God when we have an encounter with God we finally awaken to who he is, and somebody brings his image, so to speak, to us, when we behold him, we realize who we are. And all of a sudden, it's like in Isaiah, wonderful preacher, when he was confronted with God in his presence, 
He said, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. He realized that he didn't have what it takes to be in the presence of God. That's where we are. And the person who realizes that, that realizes their depravity, that realizes what they lack, they start to shrink back, which brings you to the next point. Blessed are those who mourn. See, if you realize your depravity, how you have nothing to offer God, how you are under a curse, how you are under judgment, and nothing but that judgment in hell awaits you or me, then we go, what am I to do? How am I to resolve this? And we mourn or we weep over our sin. And this is something that we are actually called to do. We are called to weep. Blessed are those who are mourn, or blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse ten says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And so the people that mourn that have gone through the first ring, who understand they lack everything necessary to be good or to have a godly life or to get into heaven, when they start mourning, it's a genuine mourning if they've grabbed the first ring. If they go directly to mourning, that is usually somebody who has been caught in a sin and they are mournful that they got caught and they have to suffer the consequences but they have never arrived first at the place of their depravity or what they lack. Also, Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, thou will not despise. I love the King James when it comes to this. Now, to give you an example of not someone who has apprehended what it is to be fallen, but somebody who has just been caught Maybe you'll remember this. Remember the show Bait Car? I, I don't know if you saw that. I, I used to love to watch the show. I, I would watch the person. They didn't realize that there were cameras and microphones in the car. And they'd come out and say, the guy told me to take the car. Really? The guy told you to take the car. Uh, yeah, he told me to get in. He gave me the keys. And he, he said, you know, I just want you to take this. And he said, you could drive it for as long as you want. And the officers are going, mm-hmm, let us show you a video. And so they show the video of inside the bait car, the entire conversation that's taking place. They lock the doors. They lock the windows. They can't get out. And you see them on the inside. And a couple of them start to weep a little bit. And they go, no, not again. Yeah, and they're just, and they're mourning that they have gotten caught. They weren't mourning over their condition, how there is just sin that is invading their life, and that's what led them to that point in the first place. And we can do that. We can get caught for something, and we mourn over getting caught, but we really haven't dealt with the first ring, being the poor in spirit. And once you're the poor in spirit, if, if somebody is poor in spirit, and they go through the mourning process, and we see that, and we ask God, reveal my sin to me. If, if you haven't done that, and you need to do it when you're alone. Ask God to reveal to you the sin that is in your life. And he will. And when he does, you ask him, help me to deal with this. And he will. And he will cause you to have a broken and contrite heart over your sin. 
And like Daniel, not only over his own sin, but also the sin of the people. And he will cause you to mourn over your own sin. That is part of repentance. There has to be the change of heart. We have to understand that we have done wrong. Once all that has taken place, if you've seen somebody who has gone through a period of mourning, like at a memorial or a funeral, they've lost somebody that is close to them, they are usually, not all the time, but usually they're very gentle. They're very meek at that point. They, they really can't be comforted too much and they are not boisterous, they're not outgoing, they're more subdued. Unlike me with the woman across the street. That was not what I was supposed to be doing. I was not being gentle at all. You know, Jesus, when it comes to being meek, he says in chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and this is King James, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And, and so Jesus is an example for us of what meekness is. How powerful was he? There's no one more powerful. His power is beyond our comprehending. It is just way out there. But he was so meek, he went to the cross and willingly. That's the same way we're supposed to be. And you see how this progression goes? You realize your sin, you mourn over it, and because God has moved in your heart, you are no longer hostile. Now, at first, we're hostile to God. The first time you had somebody confront you about sin, and if you're a believer, this has happened, whether through a message or somebody coming up to you saying, you need to repent. What was your first reaction? Oh, you're probably right. No, mine wasn't that. I'm fine. I don't need to do this. I don't need to go forward in the altar call. I already believe in God. That's end of story. Let's move on. You know, that's, that was my attitude. And I remember it distinctly. It was at a, at a fat Albers retreat that I didn't even know what it was. It was campus life. They took me up to this thing and they were doing all kinds of intramural stuff. And at the end, I go, where are we going now? And we went in. There were chargers that were in there and giving their testimonies. I'm like, what is this? I thought we were going up here to have fun and eat food. And I, I'm getting this message. And they go, now if you want to repent of your sins, come forward. If you want to believe in God, come forward. I, I've already done that. What a, it's a waste of my time. When are we getting out of here anyhow? And, and that's what I thought the first time I heard that. You know, so this idea of being meek was just completely foreign to me. Now, follow the progression again. You go from blessed are the poor in spirit to those who mourn, to those who are meek, and then what happens after that? You hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, the guy that I was just explaining to you, he was hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but he had none of the other precursors, the predicates which were there. But somebody who goes through that process, you start talking like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. 
You start saying, Lord, I want to do what is right, but I cannot do what is right because I have this body of death that is with me. The things I want to do are not the things that I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And the things I don't want to do are the very things that I do. I want to be in right standing all the time, and I just can't seem to get it right. You know, that was one of my first prayers to God when I came back up here after getting saved down in Palm Desert. I was I was trying to walk the Christian walk. And I, I go, I was just talking to God. I remember where I was. I was in my bedroom. I was standing up. I'm just kind of walking back and forth, and I'm, I'm talking to God. I really don't even know what Christianity is all about. I hadn't been to a church and kind of got introduced to one, and I'm trying to go, and I'm going, God, I just can't get this thing right. And all I heard was, you won't. I go, what? It, it was just, it's, not like I heard the voice audibly, but I knew God was telling me, you won't. Because I wanted to perfect the flesh. And I, I didn't understand it at the time. And it stopped me cold from pacing in the room. I, I actually understood that God was speaking to me about my walk. And I didn't understand at that point what grace was all about. I hadn't come to that understanding, and I had to get it later from some individuals. And I remember specifically who those individuals were. And I would question them. I said, you know, I try, or I put it to them in a hypothetical situation. I said, you know, so you're walking with the walk, and you're, you're, you've asked forgiveness for your sins, and after you've done all that, what happens when you fall again? And you keep on falling, and what's the deal with that? And this guy turned to me and goes, well, that's where the grace of God comes in. And a light went on. It's like, grace, grace. That's God's unmerited favor that he gives freely and mercy. He doesn't judge us according to our sins. And it just opened up this whole cabinet of truth that had been concealed from me. And I thought, wow. This is fantastic. It's not the hunger and thirst for righteousness that you become militant. We are going to impose our morality on society. Dominionism is what's going to happen in our society. We are going to install God's Ten Commandments, and we're going to stone the adulterers, and we're going to throw in jail, and you know all of these things. We'll probably even crucify somebody by the time we get done. And that's not where we're supposed to be going. But there are people that think like that. So this hungering and thirsting for righteousness, again, it's predicated on, I am debased, I am sold to sin, I mourn over it. It causes me to become meek, and I hunger and thirst for righteousness. What shall I do? And he goes, be merciful. Merciful to who? Everyone. But you don't understand how they have hurt me. Merciful to everyone. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. I mean, you start reading that and go, wait a second, but I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But he says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Well, am I even saved if I can't forgive somebody? Have you ever held on to something for years against somebody? I have. None of you in here. But I have. And it had to do with business. I was treated so unfairly and I would it would cause me to work really well I got a lot done because I was motivated by anger every day I would get out there and go dare he 
do something like just this strong sense of justice and righteousness and boy just wait until the lord gets a hold of him if i don't get a hold of him first you know and and again that sin comes up on the inside what can i do to this guy to get back and the lord would say do not repay evil for evil it just ruined my day because i i wanted to carry out some vengeance and vengeance is mine i will repay say it the lord and i it's like i would want to say stab it but it's the lord okay Lord, you know, I'll, I'll submit. I was unwilling to go forward, but he gently just kept on reminding me of this. Be merciful. And that means be merciful to those who have even sinned against you. And there may be no way to reconcile it, but you still extend mercy. You don't judge them according to their sin. You don't go back and repay them because God... Going back to the first principle, the first blessed, blessed are the born spirit, you realize your depravity, you focus on that and say, God had mercy on me, God had mercy on you, when you were much more of a transgressor, when I was much more of a transgressor. That's why I'm supposed to extend mercy. And you might try to justify it and say, but God, they continue to do it. Well, that's just being stupid. Don't get involved with somebody that just makes your life miserable. And if you say, well, it's my spouse. You know, we can change ourselves, but we cannot change those who are around us. And if somebody is causing us a lot of problems, maybe it's a character builder for us to learn to extend mercy and grace, even when they don't deserve it. And we want to pay them back. You see, these are characteristics of people in the kingdom. Now, how many of these characteristics do you see that you ooze or that you emulate or that you bring out and they are a daily part of your life? If somebody walks up to you and they, they looked at you and they've known you for a while, would they say, you're the meekest person I know, meek being gentle? Uh, I'm disqualified. Uh, what about being poor in spirit? Uh, pride is a normal thing that likes to hang around me and I have to crucify it on a regular basis. You know, all of these things we seem to struggle, but it is God who does it. Remember, I started with the question, how do you do this? Well, let me finish with a few more of these. We got to the merciful. Well, what comes next after the merciful? It's the pure in heart. For they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Or without purity, no one will see the Lord. These are synonyms. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know when he appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So how do we do this? You know, Paul, he was struggling with it. How did he make things right? How did he he set his course of his life correct? Well, three things come to mind immediately, what we can do. I mean, practical steps. Number one, you have to be saved. You have to have Jesus Christ in your life. The Holy Spirit has to be dwelling inside. Now, even for carnal Christians, the Holy Spirit is dwelling on the inside. And the carnal Christian grieves the Holy Spirit whenever they sin. 
We all grieve the Holy Spirit whenever we sin. But you have to have Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, well, it's not going to help. Secondly, what is our one offensive weapon that is mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6 that deals with the full armor of God? We have one offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit, that's it. We have the Word of God. We're supposed to use that Word, and that's how we combat the enemy. You know, that's how we say, I, I will not open my mouth to take God's name in vain. I will not covet, thou shalt not covet. And you already know Exodus and Deuteronomy where it's listed there. So you use the word of God. You remind yourself, as I was just telling you, I wanted to repay. I wanted my vengeance on somebody. And the Lord comes back and says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. It is the word of God that works in us. The final thing, and maybe we need to start with this one, is prayer. If you have Jesus, if you have prayer, and you have the word of God, those are the three things, the three-legged stool that will support you in meeting up to the expectations of the Beatitudes, the blessedness. And will you fail? Yes. And that's when God gets a chance to show you his mercy. And that sends you right back to the first ring. And you go, blessed are the poor in spirit. And you weep all over again for your sin. And you become meek. And you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you want to be merciful. And you seek to be pure in heart. Because you're going through this cycle. right? And after it's pure in heart, then you want to have everybody experience the peace that you experience. I have two minutes. The, The peace that you experience that comes only from God. And it's like, The Apostle Paul says, grace and peace. The grace comes first and then the peace. And the peacemakers, what are they? They are the ones who are blessed by God. They will be called sons of God. Those are the ones that God wants to use. All of us are to be peacemakers. And if we are peacemakers, then guess what happens to us? We get persecuted. You want peace? No way. We aren't having peace. And your Christianity? Ah, poor in spirit. You're just weak is what you are. Ah, meek? No. Need to be powerful. Look at the world, what the world says. You got to grab that ring on the merry-go-round. It's got to be yours. You've got to reach and strive for it. And the Lord says, the servant of the Lord must not strive. Just ruining my worldly outlook here. Just You're totally smearing it on the ground. It's like dung. I, I can't even pick it up and have it to be useful for fertilizer in my garden. What are you doing to me, God? And that's the point of the Beatitudes. We want to cycle constantly through the Beatitudes. And again, it's not something that you can attain by effort. It's something that comes as a gift of God on the inside. May God grant you his spirit in fullness to realize that we need to be poor in spirit, that we need to mourn over our sin, that we need to walk in gentleness and be meek, that we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we need to extend mercy to those who are out there, that we need to seek purity. Blessed are the pure in heart. We need to be peacemakers, And when you're all done with that, persecution remains.
but we are blessed when we are persecuted because we are members of the kingdom and these things exude from us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how rich it is. And there is so much more in these verses. And I pray that you would spur all of us to look even deeper, to get more understanding of what is here. And we thank you, Father, that you have rescued us from the coming wrath, the day of vengeance, the day where you will move and judge the earth. We thank you that your mercy has caused us to pass from death to life. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.